Hey, Carl, how's it going? It's going well. So this week we have Benjamin Kabe, uh, who is a PM on the IoT team, and he works closely with the IoT developer communities. Welcome, Benjamin. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> we are we are back. We had a little bit of a break for the summer, but uh, but we are back and in full force. So let's jump into some really cool news stories here. So for the first one we have here, uh, this is really interesting, Carl. Adding is favored over subtracting in problem solving. And you can probably figure out where we're going to go with this. But do you want to explain the study, Carl? Yeah. uh, So they start off with, uh, in this article, kind of a a visual representation of this problem. So we have a, a Lego structure. And on top of that structure, you put kind of one brick in the corner. And then you just put this giant roof over it. And they want to build on top of that roof, so they want to make make it more um, stable. So the problem is, like, how do we solve to make this roof more stable when you put any kind of weight on it? It's only got one pillar in a corner. You know, forces of nature are going to twist and crush uh, the Lego figurine below. And it, this is indicative of, you know, how we solve problems in general, not just software engineering. Um you know, physical architecture in this case, but uh, most people would solve this by removing the roof and putting more support uh, Lego pieces in there. Um, Whereas you could also solve the problem by actually removing the one existing pillar support and just put the roof directly on the structure. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially in a scenario like this, where they have some additional requirements, like each block has, has a cost to cost money to buy Legos. So in this case, um, you know, there's financial things here too, but overall this maps to patterns, you know, across how we think, you know, the human mind here is saying, uh, about 89% of the time we'll come up with an additive solution, uh, versus, you know, one where we remove things. And, uh, this doesn't necessarily need to be just like architecture or software engineering, but they said even policies, you know, a lot of times we think of, Hey, we're going to solve a problem by adding more policies, not removing policies. Um, so, you know, I think it's really interesting to know what is our mind's tendencies to do and how do we, um, think of that negative solution that could be easier to do. I mean, uh, deleting codes a lot easier than writing codes. So if we can solve a problem by getting rid of some code, uh, that might be a really cool way to start thinking about, uh, things as they come up. Yeah. Even knowing the title and looking at the diagram, I still want to add three pieces in like, (laughs) I I don't know why that is. It's kind of interesting. I, I do wonder though, if, if, if I was, you know, I, I wonder what the, the, um, sort of the setup for the test was exactly because I feel like if somebody handed this to me and are like, can you fix this for me? Like, I feel like I would remove that piece, but I, I don't know. I don't know. So it's, it's really tough to like sort of get at the, at the root of this, but assuming that they did everything legit, like it totally makes sense. I've, it agrees with what I've seen where developers are, are, you know, Hey, I wrote this code. I, I do not want to, to get rid of this code. Um, even knowing that, you know, the code just doesn't need to exist. I know I worked with a developer. It wasn't you, Carl, uh, who had, <laughs> had written, uh, this, a date time parse function. This was back in the early days of .NET. And I was like, uh, you know, it has one built in. And then of course he went into, you know, justifying mode. He's like, well, I can change it to do this. So like it perfectly aligns with that. Like he wanted to add code to continue to use the code he wrote. And I was like, no, 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 just get rid of it. Just get, just delete all of it. Uh, so I think it's good to recognize 
this tendency to not want to uh, delete things and not think of that. And if you're aware of it, then maybe you're more likely to actually make the right choice and delete things. So neat, neat experiment for sure. Uh, should we move on to the next one here? Uh, what I learned from software engineering at Google. Yeah. So here, here's a cool article and you know, this covers some things that we've kind of known as a whole. Uh, but there's a few other things that it got brought up, uh, from a different point of view that, so I thought was, was really cool that we could go over. Uh, so first of all, um, he has a really simple explementation explanation of what is the difference between programming and software engineering? And, uh, his statement was software engineering is programming over time. You know, we, you know, program a function, we, you know, we make a program, but over time, how will the task evolve? How will code adapt to changes? Um, you know, how will other people interact with our code and how will we even understand it? You know, uh, six months from now, a year from now and so, so on, you know, it's as we think about these tasks and choices over time that we move from programming to software engineering. So I, th- first of all, I thought that was really cool, mm-hmm. um, way to think about those two different definitions. I haven't heard it put uh, quite in that same way before. Yeah, I like it. Um, the second one was uh, combining Beyonce's rule with Hiram's law. And for people who don't know that off the top of their head, like I don't, um, Beyonce rule is if you like it, you should put a test on it. And Hiram's law is um, if it exists in your code, people will make it work. In particular, if you have a bug in your code, people will find a way to depend upon your bug. And the the point that they brought for this one is if you depend upon a bug, put a test on that. That way, if somebody you know fixes the bug and removes it, and all of, all of a sudden there will be a test to point out, hey, somebody is depending upon this. So, you know, I've never really uh, thought about uh, seeing a side effect in a piece of code and putting uh, a test to make sure that side effect doesn't get removed. Well, it gives you a good place to put the comment too, right? Like, here's why this test exists. Yes, this looks silly, but here's why it exists. Yeah. Uh, The next point I think is, you know, something that I've at least heard quite a bit. The earlier you find a mistake, the earlier it is to fix it. Uh, If a static analyzer automatically runs on your code. That's really easy because you can't check in until it's fixed. Unit tests, you know, running those, um, you know, that will find things and it's uh, quicker than uh, to fix something than it is later on, but it'll take you a little bit longer if than if the static analyzer goes down to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the way down through integration tests, code review, QA, and production. You know, if, if it gets to production, you never know what kind of crazy uh, customer will start relying upon weird side effects, kind of yeah, going back I, to a previous yeah. topic. I've always thought of this as the as the corollary, like the later that you find a bug, the more costly it is, which is basically yep. saying the same thing. Yeah. Uh, jumping down a bit, uh, release small but frequent uh, releases. So, you know, the, the shorter that you can map uh you know, one version of your code, uh, to the, to the next one, not only is it going to make it easier to roll out, but if something bad happens, it makes it easier to revert or undo or roll forward from, um, interesting here is he actually puts some opinions around that weekly should be the slowest. you think about that? If you have, uh, an ongoing product daily is great, but once you start getting to hourly or minutely or every commit that can get kind of 
have its own set of problems too. So finding out what, you know, what works for you and what works for the project that you're on. Um, but the concept is, is make that as frequent as possible because that'll put stress on tooling and automation. That'll make it so when there is something negative that happens, which ne something negative will happen, you can recover from that. Uh, the next one that I thought um, was a little bit obvious at first, but not, but upgrade your dependencies early, fast, and often. There's been quite a few times where I've, uh, you know, let a dependency sit for a month or two. And when it came down to it, it made it much more harder to eventually upgrade that dependency. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last one that I thought was really interesting is if, if you make a breaking change in your code, like if you want to mark something as uh, deprecated uh, and normally what uh, a response would be is you put something on the backlog, everybody please update away from uh, this function. It's no longer going to work. But the problem is people don't do that. People don't make that maintenance on their own. So their suggestion here was you just go ahead and make that change. Find out where um, that deprecated function or uh, feature is implemented everywhere and upgrade for everybody. I really like that one. I, th I think that one, I, I never thought of that. I, th I found that one really interesting. I think it's yeah. a little dangerous, but interesting. It, it is dangerous, but at the same time, you know, the, the counter thing is, yeah, we put it in the backlog and then it's just something that's just forever a maintenance item in the backlog that nobody ever gets to. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. Uh, very awesome summary. <clears throat> and then our last topic here is around GitHub. And the really the first, like the main, uh, well, actually, there's a couple of announcements here. One is that uh, GitHub Codespaces is uh, is going GA very soon. And then the other big announcement is that the GitHub engineering teams themselves, uh, they've already moved over to Codespaces. <laughs> this is how they're doing development. Duck fruiting for the ween. Yep, exactly, exactly. So they, they actually took their, uh, their original... Uh, basically their provisioning of their development environment used to take 45 minutes. Uh, they got that down to five minutes um, by using uh, some bootstrap VMs or bootstrapped uh, images. And then ultimately they optimized that further and they got that down to 10 seconds. I mean, that's truly, that's really, really amazing. So they can, if they have a, a new engineer that they're onboarding, they can say, give me a development environment and they're ready to go within 10 seconds. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing because, you know, I, th I look back to, you know, my first uh, position in tech, I, you know, I was given a laptop and like a build script or, you know, a, not script, but document. Mm -hmm. And like it, it took like, I don't know, a day or a day and a half just to get a dev environment up and running. Yep. And then, you know, I even look at, you know, something more modern. There's a, a project that a teammate of mine has that. You know, it's it's an IoT project. There's some very specific things that are going on in there, um, with some very specific dependencies, and there's a, a document to follow. And even though it's a lot more automated than that previous document was, you know, 15 years ago, um, there's still like a few hours to, you know, make sure that you know you have your VM just the right way with the right things installed. And then you can connect to it from VS code and, you know, all the little integration pieces that make that happen, you know, getting that down to, you know, I can just hit, you know, I'm assuming hit a button and 10 seconds later have a VM that has everything that I need, including probably connected even to source control. That's amazing. 
Yeah, this is so this is even cooler than that, right? So if you literally go into GitHub while especially while it's in preview here because it um uh doesn't cost you anything, just go to one of your repositories. I'm going to do it right now so you can you can hear this in in real time. So let me pick one that has not happened yet. So I'll pick ArmViz. Do I have one? Oh yeah, okay. So ArmViz does not have any code space. So I'm looking at the at the repository right now. There's a code button, and under there it says local, and then there's also a code spaces tab, and it says new code space. So I'm going to click it. So I'm going to go three, two, one, click. It says opening in code space. It says connecting, building container, container built, connecting. And now I'm running VS Code in my browser with that repository. <laughs> That's how long it wow, takes real time. I just did it as well. It's just so much faster <laughs> as it was just a few months ago. Isn't that crazy? Wow. And then, cool. you know, it's uh, if you go into the terminal in there, which is kind of mind blowing whenever you think about it, you could go down there and you can say like Docker run hello dash world. Uh, you can build your containers. Like I've tried this with a couple things where I go in there and, and I can actually build my containers uh, right from there. Uh, so how awesome is that? Like I, I have a, a Linux machine in my house here that I keep running just so I can like do remote SSH type of work. Um, but this, this makes that pretty much unnecessary. Um, obviously whenever you're doing this, you have to pay by the hour and they do have all of the pricing out there now. Um, it can be expensive and it can be inexpensive depending on what you're, uh, what you're trying to do. Um, let me pull up the prices here. Uh, and we'll include the link in the show notes. Like if you want like a four core machine with eight gigs of RAM, it's 36 cents per hour. You know, I don't, I don't think that's unreasonable uh, since you're getting essentially, you know, an isolated uh, VM uh, and they are billed per second, which is really nice. So you could just run it for like one second, just pay for one second, but you can go up to a 32 core machine with 64 gigs of RAM. And that is going to be 288 per hour, you know, so that's something to, uh, to keep in mind. Now, is that, is that something that you could, you know, uh, you know, switch between, you know, a, a high and a, a low provision machine? Um, that's a good question. Um, cause I, while it's in preview, I don't even see where you pick the machine size. Um, so that's a really good question. I would assume so. I don't, I don't see why not. Yeah. Because I mean, that would be cool if you know, you have a day where you're just kind of banging out some rough code, you know, oh. it doesn't matter, but then you get to like more of a you know, a debug cycle and you, you really want to crank up that, you know, for a faster dev loop iteration. Yeah. And then what's really amazing too, is like when you're in the code space in the browser, which, I mean, you could like run that on an iPad, for example, there's a button where you can open it in VS code locally. Uh, so like I just did that, it connects. I mean, it's just super seamless and now I'm connected to that code space. So if I go to new terminal and I type Docker run, hello world, like it will download that container and will actually run remotely in that, uh, in that container. Um, yeah, I don't know how to change the size, but that's an interesting question. Um, and then they did add one other feature, by the way. So Benjamin, while you're in one of your repos here, here's what I want you to try. So do you have a repo, not in, not in code spaces, but just go to like a repo page and just hit mm -hmm. the, hit the dot, hit the period on your keyboard. It'll say yeah, setting up I web editor. And boom, you now have a web-based editor running. And what's cool about this is it gives you a way, you know, you can you can certainly navigate the repository like through your browser. Um, and this is also through your browser, but basically it's giving you the VS Code style layout um, and letting you do it that way, which I think is super, super cool. Well, what I think is really cool is that it's 
I don't have great internet connection. Yeah. And yet it's still faster than most <laughs> of the things that I do on my local machine. <laughs> right. So that's, right. Yeah. And you can modify files. Well, I mean, when and... you think about it, like a, mm -hmm. a browser, well, I mean, VS Code is also based on the, on the browser now, but like that's what a browser is meant to do, re render text, right? And, right? and render style text. And so that's like, we're taking that to the next level. And um, yeah, that's uh, super cool. Yep. So there was a project that we mentioned on a previous episode that was basically doing this trick where they would, they would show you, uh, it's essentially like a faked VS Code in a way that shows like, you your Almost a CSS. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um it was like a third party thing. And so I don't know what, what relationship or what happened there, but they basically integrated that. So you can just hit dot within a repository. So I think it's a great way to browse the repository because this is how you think, right? Whenever you're looking at a repository, you're thinking, you know, Hey, my, my files are on the left in this, in this configuration, and then I can view everything on the right. So that is super cool to me. I will be browsing all of my repositories that way. <laughs> and any new repository I see, that's how I'm going to be browsing it for sure. Cool. Any other comments while we're in the news section? Okay. I think we're good. Cool. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's get talking to Benjamin because he also has a super cool project for us. So I guess, first of all, Benjamin, you want to give us like, you know, what, what is this project? It's like a, it's like an artificial nose. Uh, what the heck is that? And you showed us like a, you actually picked up a nose, uh, earlier for us. <laughs> yeah. Eventually I, Build something that looks like a nose and that behaves like like a nose, uh, but that's not how it started. Uh, so we are recording this. What it's in the middle of the, the summer of uh, 2021. So about it about a year ago, uh, early in the pandemic, I was uh, stuck at home, and um, I mean I've been trying to perfect my bread recipe for the past hmm, couple decades, and I was like, hey, you know what? Maybe I could use, I mean, I'm an IoT person. I play with Arduinos and embedded devices and so on. Um, I, I knew there were some pretty affordable gas sensors out there. And I was trying to figure whether I could sort of build a, a machine and potentially something powered by AI that would correlate uh, that would well that would tell me when my sourdough starter would be perfectly ripe, right? And so essentially correlate the the smell uh, of, of of the sourdough starter with um, its quality, right? When um, my brain is telling me that when it smells very uh, boozy and very uh, when it's very fragrant, I know it's the perfect time, but it might not be the exact perfect time, right? So an AI could probably do way better than than I do, and that's yeah, that's how I started. So I had uh, an Arduino kind of device lying around. I had a gas sensor, and um, yeah, and I started experimenting with that. So did you did you have to you know do some research to figure out that like you needed a gas sensor or did you have like uh, some already existing knowledge that know that knew that you know if if you got one of these you could uh, you know detect the chemical signatures of what you're looking for I mean you know yeah um, well I didn't know for sure but um, like. When I was when I had the idea, uh, I don't know what came first, but uh, I just I had spotted this kind of new sensor uh, from the uh, uh, the Seed Studio guys. So they like they do tons of open hardware, and they had a like a thirty US dollars sensor that is effectively a four in one sensor that does alcohol 
carbon monoxide, volatile organic compounds, and nitrogen dioxide. And so out of those four gases, like the first three, I was pretty confident that one way or the other, uh, that's what characterizes, I mean, when we, you measure that, you characterize uh, the quality of your sourdough, right? There is more or less carbon uh, dioxide or monoxide. There is more or less uh, organic compounds um, and same for, for alcohol. So I, I knew that somehow I wanted to play with those um, um, metrics and, and, and feeding that into my, uh, um, uh, into some kind of software, right? And so one way could be just like experimenting uh, and like do some very simple if this, then that kind of programming. But I also wanted to, I, I wanted an excuse to finally dive into AI. Because one thing that maybe I should have mentioned, uh, or, or maybe I did in passing, like effectively this is uh, a device that uses machine learning um, and what's called even tiny machine learning, tiny ML. But I had no clue about what ML was. Like it, I'm a software engineer. I've been in that industry for a couple of decades, like like uh, uh, like you and like maybe many other um, folks li listening to us. But neural networks, I just couldn't get my head around them. Like whenever I would try to learn uh, or to open a book, it would start by, hey, you know what we're going to do? Um, single digit uh, image recognition. See, it's going to be easy. It's only 28 pixel by 28 pixel and we will do this and that and what and i, I was lost uh so um i that, think that's, that's, that's a lot of people a lot of people for sure yeah and and so that's where usually i i would stop like i would still understand what's the, the general idea but uh opening up a python notebook and trying to 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 follow along i just it didn't work for me so um but yet i i kind of was familiar with the idea of using ML for correlating some kind of input to some kind of output. And so in my case, the input would be the sensor signal and the output would be almost a prediction of how good the bread could be, right? Based on, 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 the, on the input. Then, well, kind of like a, a side story, but I actually realized, hey, it's the, the beginning of the pandemic. There's hardly any flour in, at the supermarket. So do I really want to bake dozens and dozens of baguettes to train my model? Mm, that was going to be my not. next question. <laughs> like, do you have mm -hmm. to intentionally make like bad baguettes? <laughs> I, I, that was my idea originally, yeah. but then, yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if you guys uh, ever baked bread, but it's kind of a long process uh, and training a model. I didn't know much about AI, but I also knew that I, I would need more than just a couple uh, samples, right, to train the model. So um, I realized, hey, you know what, I have uh, um, a few bottles of booze at home, like I have vodka, whiskey, rum, maybe I could use just use those right as the as as the training data and um yeah that, that's what i that's what i did that's so it. for your so for your first pass you realize like hey I, I can't get enough data from baking bread or it would take too long yeah. so you know what what did that look like using those various kinds of alcohols to train your model and what did you mm -hmm. get after that first pass yeah so again assume uh I, I know nothing about AI when, when, when I started. Um, I, and that, that's where like, I really, I'm super excited about what, what I ended up achieving because, um, that I hope, and I hope, I hope that can inspire other folks. I've tried to use my intuition. My intuition was that, Hey, um, 
my actual nose is also probably uh, picking up the, the the things like the amount of alcohol and and uh, volatile organic compounds etc so if i were to record to sample a few seconds of sensor data that will not only give me sort of the overall average amount of those chemical compounds but also if i look at the like the, the couple uh, seconds of data i can probably extract some what i think what i thought was meaningful information like what is the minimum the maximum what is the standard deviation of such and such gas because that also characterizes the the smell somehow i'm that, again i mean that was my intuition but uh vodka whiskey it's all maybe it's uh, uh peaking on the uh alcohol front and the sensor is almost uh um saturated but maybe vodka is like literally always stuck uh, at 100% and maybe for whiskey it's slightly more uh, volatile slightly more uh, subtle and uh, maybe there will be um, like if I look at minimum maximum etc there, there will be this kind of, of information so effectively uh, so I recorded those um, um, couple seconds of uh, of whiskey um, uh, rum etc a few times and then uh, I actually used a third-party tool called and I'm sure Azure ML Studio does the same but I used uh, Edge Impulse uh, they have really great um, uh, tools for uh, all things tiny ML and they have wizards almost like it's like you just follow uh, they, they guide you to be like oh your signal is um, um, you have sensor signal like temperature humidity Yes, I do. A gas is probably similar to temperature, humidity. Uh, well, we suggest that you feed that through a, a signal processing um, uh, thingy that will look at the um, at the, the the few seconds of data coming in and uh, will extract the average, the minimum, the maximum, and then once I was at that point, I was like, "Oh, I see. That's what I didn't get with the uh, the some like the the image recognition things. Like it's twenty eight by twenty eight pixels. So that's a lot of pixel. It's just like pixels in random order. There first needs to be that feature extraction portion of of of, of building a, a model, right? So for for images, it might be uh, uh, trying to look at the um, extracting. I don't know, like trying to extract the edges of of the the, the different uh, uh, things and then the contrast or count the the amount of black pixels versus white pixels i did essentially the same i had raw super weird um, um, sensor data but right after it went through the signal processing block that was something very tangible it was hey the average of alcohol is this the minimum is that uh, okay i can I can see where it's going to go next. Like, yes, it's going to go into some kind of neural network, but in fact, it's just, I'm just going to try and solve an equation, right? In, in very simple terms. And so that's, uh, yeah, next step was to build the neural network, but not knowing nothing. It was also something that um, the, um, the the edge impulse environment guided me to do. They were like, hey, you know what? You have a simple input, simple output. It's going to be a fully connected neural network. You're just going to try and solve an equation with uh, X amount of, of parameters and um, and try and find the best uh, guesstimate on um, yeah on what what is the correlation between the input and, and the output and and that was it I guess that is I find this super interesting because I I built something really similar I'll get to that in a minute but first of all the data off those sensors so for each of those was it zero to a hundred percent is that is that what the data looks like 
Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that, that's okay. actually a really, 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 really good question because I'm, I'm no um, uh, um, electric uh, electronics engineer and I'm no uh, chemist either. But um, in a nutshell, the the way the sensor works is there is some kind of uh, electrochemical reaction where mm-hmm. uh, there is a thin layer of metal in, in the sensor and it gets heated up and then the metal reacts with the chemical compounds in the air and there might be some electrons being like whatever the resistance of the resistance of the sensor changes and so this is something that you can measure in your uh, arduino kind of device and um the cheap sensor that i use yeah at the end of the day i take the um the measurements as um um like just yeah zero to a hundred um but but that's because it's a cheap device. If you buy a slightly better de- um, a sensor, you, you get uh, a calibrated sensor that not only will probably never ever go to a hundred percent and will like have a really uh, long, uh, large range of, of, of values uh, that you can pick up and it will be super sensitive. And also the actual readings will be actual PPM, actual PPMs, right? right? Um, Which can can be really good uh, if if you have existing, maybe access to existing data sets that you want to use to do some... um, uh, like you want to sort of bootstrap your uh, your machine learning process with existing um, data that you find in the literature. But in my case, I don't really care whether the sensor is accurate. It's not in that it's it's not calibrated. Like from one day to the other, my sensor will give me uh, reproducible results. But if you, Jason, were to buy the same, uh, you would probably have like your zero to 100% might be slightly different. So you will have to, maybe retrain uh, the model but that's that's fine as that makes a, sense sort of a low-tech experiment yeah i had i had created a project a couple of years ago it was back in the microsoft band days and what i would do is i would look at the accelerometer on there and i i made it so that i could control powerpoint slides by doing gestures and the way that i did it at the time is i actually looked through the data and i would actually look at it in my code and then i would say oh yeah when the acceleration hits this number but when after this happens and before this happens and I sort of buffer the day and I had to write all of that myself, like it was it was pretty horrific. So it sounds like in your case, it sounds like the the ML model, uh, it basically is doing all just of the that. Yeah, exactly. yeah, because everything else that I did in that code was super simple. I mean, it was just using the band SDK and it's just data like we're, we're, we're used to doing that. But I think we as humans have a really hard time, right? Whenever you're you're looking at just numbers and you have to identify like some kind of inertia pattern, or in this case, it's like, what does a smell look like in, in numbers? <laughs> um, yeah. And that's where the ML, it seems like it, that's, it's so perfect because you just say like, this is what this type of smell looks like. I want you to identify this. And it goes, okay, I know what that looks like. I've, I've, I've gone through the data and I've analyzed it and I can, I can tell. So that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now that you're at like this stage of the project, you you had an initial ML model that you know could identify something. You kind of got your workflow down a little bit. What what was your next step to turn this into, you know, a more refined project? Um, yeah. Well, one thing that I I um, I did first because I guess that's that's what I do to some extent is that particular weekend in May of 2020 when I had like spent a few hours hacking uh things together and i was like genuinely 
impressed by the fact that the, the thing could tell not only whiskey apart from rum, but it could actually tell a peated whiskey apart from another like scotch uh, speyside kind of kind of whiskey. And I was like, really? With my super cheap sensor. So I tweeted and I like I did a, bit, a bunch of like uh, social media thing and uh, it went viral. And that that was really interesting to me because once I was done like spending a couple hours um, and, uh, hacking the project. I actually like looked behind me and I was like, I didn't do much. Like the, the model itself, I could have, just like you said, Jason, I could almost have done without AI. The sensor is something that literally anyone could uh, could afford and could, could source. It's not like a, a, a secret sensor that is available only under NDA kind of stuff. And yet people were super uh, excited and like including people from industries uh, where I was convinced that they had already built an artificial nose decades ago like people who are uh, like in the cosmetics industries like they actually like reached out and they were like how did you do that uh, you really want to know like it's it's that, yeah, it's that very is, low that tech, is right? crazy yeah it's just it, it's yeah it's not even complicated but just nobody had thought of it before I guess, but that, so now I'm doing my best with my broken English and my, uh, uh, but like to, I really want to inspire people to just like dive into, I mean, again, I've been in the software industry for uh, over 15 years. I just couldn't get my head around neural networks and that's not how it should be, right? So um, uh, some people might be really good at AI and ML. Uh, and that's also something that I realized uh, they might be in that situation and yet, they um, where they they lack some knowledge might be more on the um, sensor front. Like I think by now it's fair to assume that probably many people know that uh, what a thermostat is and that that you can measure temperature and humidity. What I realized is that many people have and had no idea that you could smell VOCs and and nitrogen dioxide and ammonia and whatever else. And so like that's. Yeah, again, that's not how it should be, right? So that's, um, I guess, my yeah, the, the first part of, of the answer to, to your question called. But then I also, um, like being an IoT person, I realized that, uh, and also seeing all the excitement on social media, I realized that it would probably make sense to turn this sort of smart uh, nose that was very much like a, sort of a self-contained into an IoT device, right? Some, something that could participate in Internet of Things. So the next step was to sort of like see and leverage actually the fact that the um, the microcontroller, the Arduino kind of device I used, it actually has a Wi-Fi chip. So um, it's one thing to have a nose that has like that shows you uh, shows you on the on the LCD display what the um, what it is smelling. But uh, think of scenarios where I don't know you want to like. Uh, optimize the maintenance and the, the, the cleaning schedule in um, in an office building. You don't want to send people to clean uh, restrooms when, I don't know, it's COVID and people don't really go into the office and you just don't want to go there and clean every day. Maybe you can go every other day or maybe maybe every every uh, uh, every week. And so how about deploying some kind of device that just smells how fresh the air is and uh, whenever it picks up uh, a uh, some yeah bad air and foul air, it uh, almost tweets right. I mean, it sends the signal to to an IoT platform uh, so that this can be routed into um, whatever workflows um, and and trigger any 
yeah kind of business processes so uh, next step was to yeah to add to the tiny ml um, um, uh, part of the project to add iot right and integrate with azure iot use literally just a couple lines of code really to just uh, say hey whenever i have this output from my uh, uh, machine learning model if it's uh, over 80 percent of say file error then yeah send send the signal to the iot platform right and so that was uh, kind of the next step there that is super cool. I'm just picturing like if that sensor, especially if they can get the cost down, if it starts getting used more and more like this, I mean, in thermostats, like they will keep track of temperature, humidity, like why not have some of these things in there too? Like, I, I don't know if it could be like a carbon monoxide detector or like in your garage, you could have some kind of detector, you know, Hey, is the air quality? Like, is it, is it getting out of the bounds of like, what is safe for humans? And should we trigger some kind of alarm? Like there's so many possibilities here. Yeah. I have a yeah. brand new furnace that I just put in. And as part of that, the thermostat actually has a VOC detector mm-hmm. where if it gets above certain thresholds, it'll start circulating the air in the house. That's pretty cool. So yeah, yeah. So, something that that I also realized, and I, I actually talked to uh, like among the like that's the the beauty of of uh, going viral, I guess. I, I got in touch with some uh, neuroscientists, so folks who actually know how the brain works, and uh, it's funny because a. Uh, I mean, for us, our natural uh, tendency would be, hey, I want to build some kind of artificial nose. I'm going to use a gas sensor. But maybe picking up um, foul air, maybe just humidity and temperature will do the trick. Like, there's, there's, I mean, it's worth experimenting at least, right? You can just try and feed the data into, into a neural network. And, and maybe there are some patterns in there that, we just didn't realize are there. And maybe when it's super humid and in a particular uh, range of temperature, maybe this can tell us with like 70% confidence that um, it's it's smelling bad, right? Or similarly, maybe for smelling things, um, you use a, a camera, right? I mean, uh, I w- just a very simple, super basic alcohol sensor plus a color sensor is probably plenty to tell whiskey apart from vodka or maybe just just a color sensor if the only thing you care about is one versus the other then um you know what i mean that's Mm -hmm. that's an interesting uh thought i think right i was trying to there was an example of that where somebody was using machine learning to derive um it was it was like cost savings like how do we remove sensors and use the other sensors Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to to yeah to your point about the um um like yeah training some kind of um uh, model based on accelerometer data, mm-hmm. and then you realize that your um um yeah there might be a cheaper sensor that instead of having uh, accelerometer plus gyro plus whatever you only have the accelerometer, but you first train your model with all the data and then you oh, yeah, you, you, you remove the other and you sort of use ai to uh re um yeah to to simulate like to yeah to have virtual uh, a virtual sensor essentially mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I find that really fascinating. Yeah. Cause you could, you're right. You could have, cause I, you know, I always think about that, like the, my Apple watch, for example, or Fitbit or whatever, like the tracks your steps. And I always assume that they are doing some kind of machine learning to make that happen. But Apple isn't really like transmitting back that information. So they don't get that training data, but I can just imagine now that they have like a hundred people that they outfit with like a thousand sensors so that they know like every position of like their legs and everything. And they're like, yeah, just go about your day with like this, like suit on. And we're going to collect insane amounts of data because we will absolutely know like what a step is. And then they can match that all of that crazy data with that one little sensor that's just the accelerometer. And they can say, hey, when you see this pattern, but not this pattern, but this one's good, then uh, then that means a step. So I, I wonder now I really wonder how they're doing that. I always wondered how Apple was doing it, but I wonder and Fitbit, obviously. So now I wonder if that's what they're if that's what they're doing. They're using some kind of super advanced pedometer to train the stupid pedometer. <laughs> so you know, I'm looking at the the parts list for the hardware that you uh, you know have for this. And the other thing that I like, in addition to it just being you know a simple parts list, this is one that's really optimized for. I don't need a lot of skills or experience on on doing IoT. You know, there's jumper jumper cables with standard connections. There's no soldering. Um, whereas, you know, some people might be comf- comfortable with that. You know, this is a really cool project conceptually, but, you know, it's very approachable for people from all skill levels as well. How, how much thought went into that part of that um, in, in addition to the rest of the other technical pieces? Yeah, well, I guess um, there, there's uh, sev- several ways to, to, to look at it, but uh, I, I've been playing with with Arduinos, etc., forever, and I I, I had this uh, Arduino-based platform, so it's called the, the Wii terminal, like the, sort of the brains of the nose is is a, a Wii terminal, and sort of by by design, it's really meant to be solderless and just like you you just plug your um, your sensors to it, and uh, yeah, that's that's. How, how I started, that's how also I, I ended up also experimenting with uh, additional sensors. Like it, it's not on, on the, um, on the, on the, like what you went, just went through is actually, uh, I don't think we've mentioned it uh, before. It's, it's on GitHub. Like everything's on GitHub. Everything's open source. Um, if, if folks listening to us um, want to play with, um, with the, with the hardware, you have all, all the instructions out there. And if you end up like playing with, Additional sensors. I would love to receive your your, your pull requests, but yeah, no. I mean, my, yeah, my my. Um, uh, I'm not sure how much of it was was intentional. That's that's one. That's the hardware I had, and two. Once I, I went through those sort of this initial uh, social media round that I described before, like I I was convinced that I didn't want to do more complicated than that. I I could like I, I could be like, hey, here's how you'd build a tiny artificial nose something that actually fits on a chip but i don't care like i really wanted to uh, show more like the almost the lego approach right it's you take this sensor you take this microcontroller you just snap them together and then software wise you take uh, a bit of tiny ml you start tinkering with that once you're happy with that turns out that you have tons of options out there if you're interested to add um, IoT to the mix, like you can look uh, at just doing 
super simple um, MQTT based kind of integration and you talk to your uh, server, uh, to your home automation server at home, whatever, and or you're like, hey, I want to integrate with Azure IoT, with AWS IoT. But it's it's really just like literally an, an additional component that you can add to the mix. Uh, and I think that's yeah what many people maybe don't realize is that um, Embedded IoT can be scary because, like by nature, it's tiny devices, it's uh, weird tool suites. But at the end of the day, it's just good old um, engineering, good old uh, software, and you can just yeah prototype. Um, hopefully, yeah, like I think all the tools out there to, mm-hmm. to prototype and to experiment. Yeah, and then I know afterward you so you connected it up to Azure IoT Hub. So what what was the uh, what did you use that for? Yeah, so the uh, it's funny because I always uh, introduce that and start by saying, uh, you guys will think that I will just start talking buzzwords, but essentially the idea was not only to connect to to IoT and an IoT platform, but to actually see what it would mean for the the nose to participate in uh, digital twins scenarios, right? And so digital twins is a buzzword or sounds like a buzzword, but it's essentially this idea of going back to um, the um, the use case and the application I was describing before. The uh, I'm a company who was like specialized in uh, like cleaning cleaning office buildings and I've been doing that for decades and I have obviously a huge information system where I already manage my the, my my personal and my cleaning schedules etc cetera, etc cetera. what if I can start deploying physical devices in the field like sensors and noses and whatnot and have those devices also being part of my information system, right? I have uh, a building um, in Redmond, Washington uh, that has uh, floor one, floor two, and floor three, and that has uh, Jason responsible for cleaning the building on Thursdays. And then in a particular floor of this particular building, I can almost like like literally attach uh, my twin, like the, the digital representation of a physical device that's being deployed in, in floor two of that particular building. And so now you can easily imagine what happens when said device sends a, what I was calling a tweet earlier, but sends a signal to the cloud, to the IoT platform. That signal uh, is now so much more than a signal, right? Because you can relate it and you can correlate uh, that signal. You can be like, okay, oh, this is coming from this device. It's on floor number two of this particular building. Let's look at the cleaning schedule. Oh, today it's Jason was on duty. Let's send Jason a text so that they 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 go and 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 do some uh, maintenance and some servicing, right? And so that's that was my intention, right? And trying again to to stay super simple. It doesn't need to be uh, at least from from my perspective. I don't want it to be more complex than just sending this kind of signal and and sort of illustrating the the digital twin scenario with the uh, with, with with this device and showing how easy it can be right sending the signal is effectively just one api call away from like from the embedded device once you have the signal, whether it's like raw sensor data or something that an AI model um, uh, gave you, you just route the signal to the IoT platform, and then the, the sort of the, the the rest of the magic happens, where 
yeah, using uh, Azure Digital Twins, for example, you can model all the all the dependencies, trigger um, whatever workflows when, whenever something something happens. Yeah, I've been in the in the IoT uh, building on campus yeah, where the IoT a lot of the IoT engineering team sits, and they have there's just screens everywhere that say like what the current status of all the conference rooms is. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. what uh, different temperatures and sensors. And so now what they have to do is they have to outfit it and say how each room smells, although there might be some people that get offended. So I don't know. They'll have to, mm-hmm. there'll be some politics mm-hmm. involved there. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was know. wondering how long it would take for us to get there. Because <laughs> on, on, on social media, it was, it was funny as well when I started to, um, yeah, to tweet about this stuff. It like, People were like, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And then uh, fart jokes starting to <laughs> to happen. <laughs> yeah, I thought of that earlier, but uh, I wasn't going to mention that. I was going to keep it clean. I did, sorry. <laughs> no, it's awesome. Um, cool, cool. So, awesome project. Yeah, so ahead, so if, I wanted, if I wanted to get started with this, you know, there's there's the hardware list and you have all the code out there. What, what is the capabilities of the, you know, ML model and what it can smell out of the box? And what does it look like for me to, you know either retrain it or refine it or, or, you know, be able to detect something new? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So um, for the reasons I mentioned earlier with regards to the, um, I guess, the the accuracy and the, um, the overall quality of the sensor, uh, it's, it's really cheap, which means that if you would like to, like out of the box, the um, the the nose will smell with reasonable accuracy things like coffee, whiskey, um, and ambient air. I mean, like reasonable accuracy, because maybe your sensor, the one you will get uh, when you order it, might have slightly different calibration than than mine. So when it comes to Adding new smells, usually you would just like retrain the, the model pretty much from scratch, right? And so the, uh, you attach the, um, the training actually happens in the cloud, interestingly. And so the sensor data, uh, in order to feed the data into the, the cloud-based environment, you just attach the, the, the nose to your, uh, PC over, over USB. And then you can start like recording, recording new smells. And I've had like with the, um, um, with with the sensor that that's being used as part of the, the original build, uh, I've had really good results with all things food, right? Like even uh, like if you want to uh, smell and classify spices, like telling white uh, pepper apart from black pepper, things like that, it actually works. Uh, you can uh, train it to recognize when uh, food is burning. That's also an interesting one. There's probably uh, I mean, we discussed that b- b- briefly before. There's probably many ways to detect uh, burning food. You can have smoke sensors, you can, uh, but you can also use a gas sensor uh, and picking up the ammonia uh, uh, in there and, and other uh, compounds. So, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, the, the training is usually pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, it takes, I mean, yeah, you record a couple minutes even less uh, it works to uh, of the smell that you want to add to to the model and you you retrain if you really want to smell like maybe i don't know dozens and dozens of smells then uh, you may want to you may need to refine the architecture of the neural network and this is where you actually need to learn what a neural network is maybe uh, but yeah out of the box uh, a handful of smells it's it's pretty straightforward to to retrain the model very cool any other questions carl no, I mean, you know, I, I'm just 
excited about like the potential opportunities a project like this has and you know just running through like how could i use it uh, you mm-hmm. know I, you know i have a, a bunch of teenage boys at home and you know you know telling them to clean their room is one thing but if i have data that says hey this artificial nose <laughs> says your room stinks you know that's that's <laughs> automating my parenting a little bit yeah i could tell them to change their sheets yeah that's that's super cool i mean it makes it makes you just start to think about like all the different types of sensors you could use too. And just in general, uh, like I said, augmenting cheaper sensors, uh, you know, maybe it was like Tesla that I was thinking of where they have, uh, obviously they, they train, um, and in like Waymo and some of these other ones, like they have insane numbers of sensors on some of the test cars, but then ultimately they use, you know, just simple vision or a couple, uh, sensors on the car to, to ultimately do that. So it's kind of neat seeing that tech where they can, they can reduce it, uh, down to cheaper sensors. So I find that aspect really cool. Cool. Anything else you're dying to uh, tell us about this, Benjamin, or do you think we covered everything? No, I think we covered everything. Like, like, like I said before, like everything's on GitHub. So, um, the, um, yeah, if, if you're listening to, to, to the podcast and, and, and intrigued and you have, um, yeah, you want to experiment and, and spend a weekend hacking, uh, uh, hacking around the nose, maybe with your kids. Like I've, I've seen many people do, uh, yeah, just go and check out the instructions. The, all the code is there. If you have a 3D printer, you can even print like the, the funny looking 3D enclosure. You don't have to. Uh, you can just use the, the, the sensors uh, uh, with, without the enclosure, of course. But uh, yeah, no, I, I yeah, uh, that's, um, I guess that's my my call to action. And I really want to, uh, uh, I'm also yeah, yeah looking forward to, to hearing from, from all of you on maybe your feedback, your tips and tricks on how, um, yeah, how this can be used to to teach AI, right? Because at the end of the day, if I, with like decades of experience with software, I was just scared uh, about AI, like we we need more of, of these, right? So that's um, that's something also I would love to hear from from all of you. Cool, cool. Uh, Carl, what do you have for the dev tip of the week? Uh, for the dev tip of the week this week, um, I have a browser extension called Vimium, V I M I U M, and. Uh, I don't know where this is going. VIM, as in, is this going to be the VIM against Emacs kind of battle? No. Well, not not quite. But, you know, the the thing is, is, you know, as a developer, you know, a lot of the IDEs are really keyboard focused. And when you're using a browser, it's very mouse focused or touch focused. And, you know, a lot of times I want to just be able to do things more easily via some sort of shortcut and it's not always there. So the the first, you know, thing that actually led me to this extension was how how can I maybe quickly click on a link uh with only using a keyboard. And what's cool is once this uh browser extension is installed, you just tap F and by every single link on the page it puts uh, a letter or a series of letters if there's too too many to, you know, overflow a single character that if you just quickly type that, it'll go to it. Or if you do uh, a shift, we'll open it in a new tab instead of navigate directly to it. So one, there's that really, it's actually really cool just browsing through websites and just going through like Wikipedia is great because you can just kind of go on a Wikipedia trail forever using your keyboard. But as I got this 
and was using it for that, I realized it actually has a lot more uh, keyboard shortcuts or bindings to do more things. So you can go back and forth in your history. You can scroll. You can open up uh, the the source code. Um, it actually provides uh, easier shortcuts to find. So you know, a lot of things that I do is I open up some documentation and I want to find a certain keyword. Uh, so instead of having to do um, like a right click and find, you know, just hit the slash key and then start typing what I want to look for. And it just jumps there. And it has a really nice uh, UI that stays out of the way. There's little hints once you hit F or slash or whatever. On the bottom, it says, we'll open link in a current tab or new tab if you hit shift F. It's just a really cool way to stay on your keyboard if that's what you want to do. And it's available for... Um, the Chrome uh, web store as well as Firefox. And if you have an edge browser, it uses Chrome web store too. So all of your ma major browsers are uh, covered with that. So is there Emaxium? Uh, you know what? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let somebody else uh, search for that. That's what Benjamin's looking for. Apparently. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. So Benjamin, uh, where can people find you? Uh, Twitter, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm usually pretty active on, on, on Twitter and that's a, a good way to, uh, to, to ping me or to find me, or you can uh, also find me on my uh, blog, I guess I'm trying to, to, to post more. And I think most bloggers <laughs> always say that, uh, but yeah, I usually, um, blog about uh, IOT and, and now ML topic because I'm now an ML expert, right? So, so how do they find you on Twitter? Okay. So if you just, uh, I'm Cartman on Twitter. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Oh, you already follow me. I'm going to follow you. Perfect. Okay. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash techie. So Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about your nose, which is artificial. <laughs> mm -hmm. <Yep. laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was great. <laughs>